Well, welcome. We are in a series, if you're new, it's called The Storyteller. And what we believe is that Jesus Christ, yes, he is the Son of God and also the greatest storyteller of all time. And what Jesus did is about a third of the time he was talking, or at least we have written down, recorded in Scripture, he's telling stories. And we call these stories parables. You've probably heard of parables before. Uh, a parable, here's just a quick summary. A parable is a short story that communicates a massive truth. It's a short story that communicates a big truth that you need to know the rest of your lives. So we're taking seven or eight weeks to look at seven or eight of the parables of Christ. And today we're going to be in Matthew 21. If you'll open to, type to or turn to Matthew 21. I'll meet you there in a minute. And let me just tell you about what's going on, because to understand the parable that I'm going to explain today, you're going to have to understand what's going on in Matthew chapter 21. It's one of the most interesting and confusing chapters in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 21, let me just, because normally go through books of the Bible, but today we're kind of jumping around, and so let me give you the context, because when you study a book of the Bible, the same rule applies as to when you buy real estate. Location, location, location. What's most important is where is this located in the text, in the Bible, in the book? And this is the last week of Jesus' life, and it is a, it, the hostility is increasing. Uh, he is, uh, we're going to see, what, what ends up happening in this chapter, and this will help you understand it, is that the religious leaders, and by the way, they were always the hardest on him, and he was always the most grieved by them. I told you that last week. That's one of the surprising things, that the people that saddened him most, that grieved him most, that gave him righteous anger the most, that frustrated him where he said, why is your heart so hard? It was always the religious leaders. Well, in Matthew 21, what we're going to see is they continually press on him. They question him. They inspect him. And you go, well, why is this happening? Well, this is so powerful. Let me tell you why this is happening. Because Jesus, symbolically, he is the Lamb of God going to be sacrificed. And the week before a lamb was sacrificed for Passover, it was meticulously inspected by the religious leaders of the day. Isn't that awesome? So I want you to understand, this is why the gospel is the central message. What's happening is Jesus Christ is being inspected by all of the religious leaders, and they are trying to find a fault or a flaw in him, and they can't. Isn't that awesome? And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you through four different episodes that lead him to telling three different parables. And we're just going to look at one parable today. But he has four, I don't know what else to call them except for terrible interactions, that lead him to tell three parables. And Jesus will often do this. He'll tell three parables. He's like, you guys have got to get it. And these three, I'm only going to go over one of the parables because all three of them say the exact same thing. The parable we're going to look at, I believe, is either two or three verses long. That's it. But to understand it and for it to have its force, you have to read the whole of chapter 21. So we're going to go over it quickly as Jesus talks to the religious leaders. And here's one other thing that I want you to understand before we kind of dive into chapter 21, is that when we talk about religious leaders or when we talk about religion, I just want to, because people can use that term religion differently, so let's talk about it. Um, by religion, I don't mean that just Christianity is a world religion. Of course it is. And when I use the word religion or religious, if by that you hear a dynamic faith with Jesus Christ in which you're trusting him and living out your faith in him, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about religion that is only external, not internal, right? I'm, I'm using, remember when Jesus looks at the Pharisees, some of you will know this, and he says they're whitewashed tombs. And then he describes that, that's religion. He says they're really clean on the outside, but on the inside, they're dead. So, so to understand his interaction with the religious people, you need to understand the difference between religion and the gospel. Let me just help you a little bit, help myself a little bit. Religion is about external conformity. The gospel, Christianity, is about internal transformation. Um, religion is about buildings and events and places and services and routines and rituals. 
And the gospel is about a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ and being together as a family and being on mission together. That's it, what it means. That religion is um, talking about sin is out there and sin is what other people do. That's religion. And in fact, the dirty secret of religion is I feel better. I feel better about myself and think I'm better than other people because somehow I've learned how to not give in to the gross sins that others are giving into. Or if I do, I do it more secretly or I rename them or I exchange them for sins that are easier to hide in my life. That's religion. Um, the gospel is about Jesus Christ transforming and changing me. Religion is about um, what I do. The gospel is about what Jesus does. Religion is about me. The gospel is about Jesus. Religion says there's good people and there's bad people. And the gospel says there's bad people and there's Jesus, and that's it. And so I want you to understand some of that because what we want to fight against, especially in the Bible Belt, which there's still some resemblance of the Bible Belt you know, in, in Winston and other places of, in the Southeast, um, what we want to fight against is people who are religiously lost. We want to be very clear about the gospel because there are people who are in church, but they're not in Christ. They've been converted to church culture. They know the language, they know the types, they know the, they know the words, they know the phrases, they know how to say, I'm struggling with, would you pray for me, I don't feel led. They know all the right language, but their hearts have not been transformed. And so with that said, look with me at verse 8. I want you to see what Jesus says as it goes forward. It says this, most of the crowd, and part of what Jesus is dealing with, and part of what we need to understand as Christians, those of us who call ourselves Christians, is what is the difference between a crowd and a church? It is not hard to get a crowd. Meet somebody's physical needs, have a great speaker, have a good band. And it's not hard in any city, at any place, to gather a crowd. It's very difficult to build a church. People who love Jesus are repenting of sin, being honest with one another, and are doing service, ministry, and mission. And Jesus has never been impressed with crowds. In fact, the bigger the crowd, the harder the teaching. That's often how Jesus did things. So it says this, most of the crowd spread their cloaks. Okay, sounds like worship. Looks like worship. On the road, and others cut branches. By the way, this is Palm Sunday. If you ever wondered, why is it called Palm Sunday? Because they had palm branches. Says this, from the trees, and they spread them on the road in the crowds. He's emphasizing crowds. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You've probably heard this song sung before. Uh, Hosanna in the highest. So they're singing songs to Jesus. But then look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city stirred up saying, Who is this? So this is one of the reasons why Jesus is going to speak so harshly to religious people. They sing songs about him, but they don't really know him. And you go, does this happen? This happens all the time. This happens in our entire nation every Christmas, right? An album comes out and some singer singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel or O Holy Night. And you're like, I don't think they have any idea what this song's about. But the, the feelings of it, the emotion of it, it reminds them of Christmas. It reminds them of childhood. This is not difficult. This can happen to you very easily. You start singing songs that you're very, very familiar with. You're not even realizing what you're singing. It's worshiping God with your lips, but not really worshiping God with your life. And it says this. And the crowd said, this is a prophet Jesus. So they have a high view of Jesus. They have a good view of Jesus, but not a God view of Jesus. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the, what this is, this is the difference between a crowd and a church. This is the difference between uh, fans and followers. Jesus had many fans. He had few followers. He had many fans, people who tr uh, followed him at a distance. Uh, he had few followers, people who really wanted to be his disciples. So he has this kind of weird interaction with this crowd, and, and we know that they're not real Christians, we know that they don't really get it because this exact same crowd, uh, just a few days later, is gonna say crucify him. 
And so from there, he goes into maybe the most confusing thing Jesus does in his ministry. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And if you read John chapter 2, which is in another gospel where it gives you more detail, it says that Jesus made a whip. This is the Indiana Jones scene in the New Testament, okay? <laughs> how many of you are like, I didn't know Jesus made a whip, right? Wow. You know, how many of you are like, that, that takes some time. That probably takes several hours. You have to go get the materials. This is a premeditated, thoughtful moment in the life and ministry of Jesus where he is frustrated and righteously angry at the religious leaders of the day. I want you to see what he does here. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, verse 12. He overturned the temples, tables and the money changers. I mean, this is dramatic. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, you won't ask, why is Jesus so mad? Jesus is mad because religious people are making it hard for others to worship God. This is so relevant for us today. Jesus is angry at the religious people of the day who are making it difficult. Because here's what would happen. It, what, what would happen at the temple is people who were genuinely seeking God. Um, they would come from far away. They'd walk miles and miles and miles, and they would bring their animals with them to sacrifice to worship God. How many of you today, if you had to walk miles and miles to church and bring your animals, you wouldn't have been here tonight, okay? Probably, probably many of you wouldn't have come, and that's okay. Uh, but this is what they did. They would bring all of their animals, they would come all the way to church, and they would offer them. And then these religious leaders, they would take advantage, right? And this is what, we see this. People do this still today. Religious leaders take advantage of people because they trust them. You're my pastor. You're my spiritual leader. You're, they, it's not true, but they think you're closer to God. And so, they, and what can happen is a, a pastor or a religious leader can take advantage of that. And here's what they would do. This is exactly what they would do. They would bring the, the, the people would be coming with their animals and then they would say, um, okay, you know, I, I'm here to sacrifice my goat. And they'd say, you can't sacrifice that goat. That goat is not a pure goat. That goat is not, you know, without blemish. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to buy that goat off of you for 10 cents on the dollar. But then, if you'd like to, we've marked up these goats over here that are perfect and blameless. And if you'd like to spend your money on these, then we'll sacrifice these for you. Do you see what they're doing? They're using people's desire for God and they're manipulating their money. Now, why are they doing this? Because they overextended themselves on a building project. Uh-oh, does this, any of this sound familiar ever? This is actually what happened. They were 20 years into a 40-year building project, which is interesting because when it's finished, it's destroyed six years later, which tells you that facilities have their place and they don't have their place, right? And so what has happened, this is, it's like, this is why when you read the Bible, you go, this isn't what happened, this is what still happens. Have we ever heard of situations in our nation, in the history of, of the church in America, where people overextend themselves on building projects, and then they get overwhelmed, and then everything's about money with everybody in the congregation? And so Jesus comes in, and he, he you know, drives them out. And what's so interesting about all of this is, is he's dealing with the consumeristic culture that's in the church. And this is one of the great dangers in the church, is a consumeristic culture. For there to be some relationship set up, and it can be with the leadership or with the laity, that somehow the church exists to deliver you religious goods and services, and then you approve if they're good enough, right? And, and you've partaken in this. We've all partaken. If you've ever said before, I don't like that worship song, the right response to somebody who says that is, that's fine. We're not worshiping you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? It's like, I know that's a little bit, you know, unless there's something theologically wrong with that song, or we said that, but it's like, no, we should ask, is God pleased with that song? It may have been too loud for you or too soft for you. It may not have been the beat that you liked. You might have liked old songs. We like news, whatever it is. 
And what's so interesting is that this is, and this is why kind of knowing the history and what they were, the Jews were expecting is helpful. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to come and to cleanse the temple. This is like a prophecy that he would come and cleanse the temple, and they thought, great, he's going to come and he's going to cleanse the temple from all of the religious, sorry, from all of the um, rebellious people, all of the Gentiles, and all the unbelievers. And Jesus says, actually, no, I'm coming to cleanse it from religious people who will not repent because they confuse everybody else. It's like, all right, now, you, this, so you have to understand all of this to understand the parable he's about to tell. So then he goes from there, and he gets hungry, right? Because Jesus is just like you and me, uh, except for without sin. He had all the emotions. He had all the experiences that we do. So in verse 19, if we go down there, it says in a, in a different parallel passage, it says that he was hungry. Or verse 18 says he was hungry. It says this, and seeing a fig tree, so Jesus was hungry for a fig newton, okay? We've been there. You've been there. Um, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but leaves. Every word of Scripture is important. It's interesting. It says he found nothing on it but leaves. Now, normally, it would be very, very, very rare for a fig tree to have leaves and no fruit. To have neither leaves or fruit just meant, okay, it's not in season. But to have leaves, and this is, this is the religious spirit, to have leaves and no fruit which means it looks good from a distance, right? It looks good on social media. It looks good on Sunday. It has the right language, right? I mean, I remember this was not in this church. I remember I was discipling a guy, and he was posting all these pictures of him and his wife on Facebook having such a great time, and I'm like, y'all hate each other. Like, I know you do. And your wife just called my wife crying about how terrible you are to her. So... But you took the one picture from the, I mean, it's, it's, it's all leaves. Right? I don't even know if this is a reference, you can't prove for sure if this is a reference back to, um, to Genesis chapter 3, right? You know what happens in Genesis 3? They sin, and what do they want to do? They want to cover themselves with leaves. And, and part of the reason that some people, and I understand it, we all understand it, why some people don't ever want to get in a community group, they don't ever want to come to a weekender, they don't ever want to get into a discipleship relationship is because they're afraid somebody's going to see they're all leaves and no fruit. Right? They're all barking, no bite. They, they have all of the language, but they don't, they don't have any of the life. And so what Jesus does, here's what he does. He says, and Jesus said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Here's what's so interesting, and I don't know exactly what this means. This is Jesus' last miracle in the book of Matthew. So if you read the book of Matthew, he does a ton of miracles, and they're all awesome. And then the last one, he's like, curse this fig tree. And, and what most people believe this means, what most scholars believe this means, is it's, it's symbolic cursing of the people of Israel. It's basically saying you have been completely unfruitful and now I'm cursing you. Because God's desire for your life, it's like, well, there, you know, there's, there's a lot, there's a very few things that you could say, absolutely this is the will of God for your life, but I can tell you one of them. On the authority of scripture, it's that you would be fruitful. It's that you would have a fruitful life. And there's two types of fruit in the Bible. There's the fruit of your life. That means that you are becoming more and more like Christ. You're becoming the godliest version of yourself. You're becoming who Jesus would be if Jesus was you, okay? You're becoming more and more of that. Um, and there's the fruit of your ministry. Man, you keep meeting people who are influenced by you. People are challenged by your life. People, it, it's like what I heard about Bill Bright. Bill Bright was an incredible godly man. Um, started Campus Crusade for Christ, and at his funeral, I was reading transcripts from his funeral, somebody said, um, to know Bill Bright was to know God better. And man, the world's crazy, but in a crazy world, Bill Bright let me know God reigned. It's like, man, would you like someone to say that at your funeral? That's, that's the fruit of a life. 
And so Jesus is frustrated because there's people singing to him who their hearts are far from him. The church has forgotten its mission and vision and has become consumeristic. And all of the people are all leaves and no fruit. It's like, this, this sounds like the American church. And then he has a direct confrontation with the religious leaders. When he entered the temple, so I guess he goes back. Is this the same day? We're not sure. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders, that's like the, the most religious le- people and all the leaders of the day, uh, of the people, they came up to him and he was teaching and said, this is what they say to him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? See, everything in life's about authority. I mean, the, the reason that Jesus Christ was crucified at 33 years old as a young man is because he claimed to have all authority. And, and everything in life is about who's in charge. Your, your relationship with Jesus Christ ultimately comes down to who's in charge. Is it you or is it him? And there's really only four places historically you can find authority. There's, I mean, there's, maybe there's more that I'm not thinking of, but that I can think of, there's four. You can, you can find it in the state, like North Korea does, right? And every, every place that tries to find ultimate authority in the government, none of us ever want to live there, ever. <laughs> like, you know, Kim Jong-un's in authority, no thank you, right? He's God, basically, to them, no thanks. And there, and that, that, but you'd be surprised how many people in all of human history have lived under regimes like that. That would actually be more people who've ever lived have lived under that, the second place people try to find, uh, this would be more culturally today, people try to find authority in whatever the society says, whatever the status quo says, whatever the culture says, right? So the authority is what do the celebrities think? And that changes all the time, and it's different this week than it was last week, and it's certainly going to be different three months from now, and it's different every election cycle, and this is why everybody says you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, you know? Uh, so other people don't find it in the state or in society, they find it in themselves, Right? And, and people don't even know that they're doing that, but if you've ever said, well, this is how I feel, or this is what I think, if you're talking about the most ultimate things, well, well, I don't believe that God ever could. Well, based on my experience and what happened to me, I. And then the final place is to find it in the scriptures and what God has said and what God has revealed. And we don't believe that the scripture is the only authority. We believe that it's the highest authority. It's the Supreme Court under which every other authority must submit. And so Jesus is having this conflict with the religious leaders, and then in verse 24, it escalates. Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question. This is very rabbinical. This is very Jewish to basically answer questions with questions. And Jesus says, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say for man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus doesn't just immediately answer everybody's questions because he knows their motives, right? So he wisely answers with another question. It's like, I've, I believe I've told some of you this story before, but it's like I, I, knew, I heard, read, was reading a book about a college uh, pastor, and he was on a college campus, and he was leading a college Bible study with a bunch of non-Christians, and one of the non-Christians said, so you're telling me that everybody that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ is going to hell? And he said, do you believe in hell? And the guy said, no. And he goes, well, don't worry about it then. <laughs> and then he said, another guy goes, well, I believe in hell. And he goes, do you think anyone will be there? Isn't that interesting? That's, that's the ministry of Jesus. 
And that's the engaging the mind. That's the engaging the heart. That's the asking of the questions. This is what Jesus does. And, and, and so much so that he, to, to get at it, he tells a very short parable. And, and the parable that I'm about to read, we, we've done everything we've done. We've done all the work we, that we've done to get to this place to where we can hopefully maybe understand this parable. And the reason I say this is I could not think of a more important parable for Winston-Salem. Uh, this parable is so important that I actually think that when you, walk, when you drive on the interstate and you pull up to Winston-Salem, it's just say Winston-Salem, and underneath it, it's just say Matthew chapter 21. Because I, I, I love this city. I, I, you know, I, I plan on being here long term. My family loves this city, but it is one of the most religious cities. It is very over-churched. It is very under-reached. Everybody's been to church or a church or many churches. Uh, many people think they're a Christian. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of religiously lost people. And so Jesus, to try to get to them and to try to get to us, he tells a very, 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 very short parable. And I want to read it to you. Here's what he says. What do you think, always engaging the mind, always engaging the heart, wanting us to wrestle with these things, what do you think? A man, and this Jesus was so simple, a man, a dad actually ends up being, a dad has two sons. So there's, these da- there's a dad and there's these two brothers. And the dad went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. And some of you go, oh my goodness, my son's in the Bible. It's right there. <laughs> there he is. It's in scripture. Um, but, but, but it goes on. It says, but afterwards, which is just to be encouraging, right? Because, by the way, afterwards means a long period of time. It doesn't mean that just to five seconds later, you turn around and said, sorry, dad, I'm going to do it. A- afterwards could mean three hours later, three days later, three decades later. Part of it is the hope to not give up on the rebellious, maybe children in our lives, the rebellious parents in our lives. To not give up on, on the prodigals that we know. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's incredibly rebellious. To tell your dad, no, I will not. To be so bold to look your dad eyeball to eyeball and say, I'm not doing what you told me to do. That's the spirit of rebellion. And there's a great hope in this text for that. It says this, and, but afterwards, he changed his mind and went. And we'll talk about this later, but that's the language of repentance. And he went to the other son... And said the same. So he says to the other son, son, go work in my vineyard today. And he answered, I go, sir. This is the religious spirit. The rebellious spirit says, I will not. The religious spirit is respectful, but then does whatever he wants to do. I mean, it's so respectful. I go, sir. See, we just started to do this. I got a seven-year-old, five-year-old, three-year-old. I wish we would have done this earlier. We've just started to teach our our kids to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. It is the most beautiful thing. I mean, it's just so, you know, when they say it to somebody else, you're like, yes. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's just beautiful, right? Because it's so respectful and it's, it's so polite. Well, that's the whole idea. They say the right thing in the right way. See, see, part of church culture, what it's done wrongly is teach all of us how to say the right thing, but not have our heart affected, right? Yeah, I'm struggling with this, which means I'm not ever going to repent of it. Uh, I don't feel led and that's not my spiritual gift. Let somebody else do it. That's the translation. I'm praying about it. I'm not praying about it, (laughs) right? Unfortunately. And so he says this, I go, sir, but did not go. End of parable. This is why one of the reasons I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, I believe that it is the Word of God, is the wisdom. That is one or two verses we just read in the whole parable. And then he asked him this, 
Which of the two did the will of his father? They, that's the religious leaders, they said the first. So they get the answer right. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors, that would be the worst of the men, and the prostitutes, that would be the worst of the women, go into the kingdom of God before you. End of parable. So, here's a couple things. One, they get the right answer to the Bible question. And that's what a religious person does. A religious person gets the right answer, right? It's like, you, you did Awanas, you did Sunday school, um, maybe you went to Christian school, you went to Christian college, you've got Christian parents, you know all the books of the Bible, I mean, you know the right answer. So the religious person gets the right answer to the question, but then they go and they do whatever they want to do. That their, their heart isn't ultimately changed. And this is what's so difficult. They can't see themselves in the text. They answer the text rightly, but they see who they are in the text wrongly. This is so important. When you read the Bible or history, never see yourself. This is actually a really good rule of studying in general. Whenever you read the Bible, never see yourself as the hero or the victim, which is normally how you're going to see it. It's like, you know, you read the counts in Germany and the Nazis, and you go, okay, you think hero. You, read, you watch Schindler's List, you think, am I Schindler? You're not Schindler. <laughs> right? Um, like, almost nobody was Schindler. And then you're like, well, maybe I'm all the victims. It's like, no, you're the perpetrator. That when you read the Bible and when you read history, read it as if you are the worst person in every story. That will be what is best for you. Even if maybe you're not the worst person in the story, you will learn from that. And it's, it's very, very humbling. And what we see with the Pharisees is they were unable to see in the most simple parable possible that they were the religiously lost people who were saying one thing but doing something very different. I've got a friend of mine, and he works in a ministry very similar to AA, very similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. A little different, but basically the same. And he was telling me a fascinating story that I'll never forget. He said that um, when people come into AA, the hardest people to see transformation and change in their life are people who've been in the church all their life. Think, of what, think this is going to be powerful, I believe, for some of you. Um, because he says what happens is they come in, and you, know, you meet with somebody, and then they, they look at you, and they say, all right, now, you know, I don't know all the 12 steps of AA, but he's, they say, okay, step one of AA is you must fully and completely surrender your life to God. And the church person goes, I did that when I was 11. You know? Oh, I did that. And then they have to go, no, you did not. You most certainly did not. I'm 100% sure you did not. You would not be here right now if you had done that. But when someone comes off from the street, guess what they say? Somebody who's never been in church, never had an experience, guess what they say when you say you've got to surrender your life? How? help. I'd like to do that. I need to do that. They say they take somebody out of church. They say, okay, here's the second thing you need to do. You need to confess your powerlessness to overcome this sin and that you are absolutely addicted to it. Oh, I've done that. No, you've not done that. You've been playing games in church for 20 years is what you've done. You signed a card. You walked an aisle. You prayed a prayer. You got emotional one time. You intellectually assented to, to some truths. You've not confessed and forsaken. But when somebody comes off the street and you say, you need to confess and forsaken, they say, I will. Teach me how. And so this is what often happens. And so what I want us to do with our time left is I want us to look at the phrase, which I think is the most important phrase in this, the phrase that the Father says to the Son. And I want us to try and unpack it together. Here's what he says. 
very simply, the phrase is this. Son, go and work in the vineyard today. A couple things. First, you work from an identity, not for one. You work from an identity, not for one. I, I believe, maybe not the greatest problem, but one of the greatest problems in the world today is that people don't know who they are. Even though we could not be more obsessed with ourselves than we are right now. With selfies and social media, and all, all and, and I'm not against any of these things, but the Enneagram, you know, and all, it's like, who am I? It's like, you don't have no idea who you are. And it's, and it, it's, it's humbling, and it's confusing, and, and part of what, what the struggle is, is we're trying to gain something that is given to us. We're trying to achieve something that is only received. See, our identity, there's, there's two things that people tend to identify themselves with. People tend to identify with themselves with what I do or what was done to me, right? And they're both sad. What I do, right? And this starts at middle school. Uh, am I the smart one? Am I the good-looking one? I'm not the good-looking one. Uh-oh. Maybe I'll be the funny one. I'm not the funny one. Maybe I'll have to be the one with great social skills. Well, maybe, maybe, okay, they're making fun of me for being the good kid. Maybe I'm the good kid. So that's my identity for the rest of my life. I'm, I'm the good kid. Right? And you have this at different stages. You go to college and you can reinvent yourself if you want to. This is, by the way, why fraternities and sororities, not against those either, but why they're so important. It's like, okay, could I get into a group of people that would define my identity forever, or at least for the next four years? Right? And some people try to buy an identity. If I have this car and I live in this neighborhood, this would be my identity. I mean, I mean, right, how many Americans are still defined by the car they drive? Come on. If I have this logo on my shirt, and if I'm a member of this X, whatever it is, then I've actually somehow been able to buy an identity. Then there's other people who they are not what they buy, and you know, they're, they're not what they do. They're, they're, and terrible things happen to people. They end up being what has happened to them, what somebody did to them. And they're defined by tragedy, they're defined by abuse, and we're very compassionate for that. We say, we don't want that to define you either. We want you to be defined by what Jesus Christ has done for you, not what someone did to you or what you do. And so what he says here is, here's your identity. The primary identity of a Christian is as a son or daughter of God. So it's really freeing. Here, what's the Christian life? Me working with and for my dad. That's the Christian life. And that, that actually frees you. What, what Jesus is doing with this phrase is he's freeing us from the religious spirit that thinks somehow I need to earn. It's like, no, I don't need to earn. It's been given to me. The second thing he says is, he says, son, go. And, and here's the big idea here, that you can't stay where you are, that you have to go somewhere new, that God's calling you to go somewhere new. And this, how does this go against the religious spirit? It goes against the religious spirit because the religious spirit thinks that it has arrived, right? I've, I've, I said this a little earlier, but I've gotten rid of certain sins in my life, so I don't struggle with these sins anymore. Um, I've cleaned up my life enough. I know enough Bible knowledge, and so people get very comfortable with where they are. And what's interesting, though, is, is in the Bible, the word go shows up 1,500 times, over 1,500 times. The word stay only shows up 60 times. The Bible has a theology of going, and there's two types of going, right? There's the going that he says to Abraham. To Abraham, he says, go, new land, new people. And then to Moses, he says, go back to Egypt. And you've got to, you know, to, over your life, I'm sure God calls us to both, right? He calls us to go and to do new things, and he calls us to go back and return. Some of you, is like, you need to go back, and you need to restore your relationship with your friend. You need to go back, and you need to do the things that your parents told you about the spiritual disciplines, about being connected to community, you need to go back and do those things. And the whole idea here is that we shouldn't stay in the same place. Here's the third thing he says. He says, I want you to go work. Now, this is interesting. People wonder, well, why did he tell him to work? Was he lazy? We don't know. 
What, what he seemed to have was the son seemed to have a purpose problem. He had nothing to do. It might be because his dad was rich. We don't know. Uh, but he ended up having a purpose problem to where God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to work in my vineyard. Now, the vineyard always represents the people of God in Scripture. That's what that represents. And so what he's saying is that the main work of every Christian should be with people. That, that what Christians care about at the end of the day, it's like, well, what's money? It's a way to serve people and serve God. What's prayer about? It's praying for people. What's counseling? Well, we're helping people. What's evangelism? Well, we're talking to people. What's discipleship? Well, we're developing people. That, that's, that is what ministry is. And, and so, you know, one of the things that's been so helpful for me in my life is, as there's been a lot of changes and transitions is, is someone told me that you always minister out of your life stage and your lifestyle. You can do more than that, but you shouldn't do less than that. That you should minister every time. This should be freeing for some of you. You, you minister out of your life stage and your lifestyle. See, I was talking to a guy this week, last week I guess it was, and he said, man, he, and he was comparing himself to another couple in the church. And he said, I just could never do what they do. And I was like, yeah, because you're in a completely different life stage and you have a completely different lifestyle. Right? I mean, singleness is a very different life stage than married. Married with kids, young kids is very different than married. Married with established kids, older, different. Empty nester, different. Retired, different. And then you minister out of your life stage and then you minister out of your lifestyle. I was talking to this guy. He's like, like, what do you like to do? He's like, well, I like to work out. I like to go up to Hanging Rock. I like to hike. I like to drink coffee. I like to go out to eat. Great. Why don't you do those things with gospel intentionality with other people? And, and then you begin to minister out of your life stage and your lifestyle. And then he says, and here's the, the emphasis that if you look at the phrase, the emphasis is on today. That's the last. He says, go work in my vineyard today. Why? Because you will do anything tomorrow. I will do anything tomorrow, right? You're like, tomorrow's the day that I lose weight. Tomorrow's the day I repent of that sin. Tomorrow's the day I start saving money. Tomorrow's the day I confess that sin to somebody else. And, and the truth is, and we know this, is we'll see this even some in the parable next week, but tomorrow often never comes. And the problem is that, you know, we think that, oh yeah, tomorrow I'm going to repent of that sin. The problem is your heart gets hardened to that sin every day. So tomorrow, if it ever does come, it becomes harder to repent of that sin. And this is why the Bible has what's called a theology of today, right? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Hebrews 10, encourage one another as long as it's called today. So there's an urgency to the message. And then this is, this is his main thing. So he says all that, but here's really the main call that he's getting at. If you look at verse 28 or 29, he says this. And he said to him, I will not, but afterwards, and this is the key, this is what, what the first son is doing is what religious people will not and do not do. But afterwards, he changed his mind and went. It's, that is completely the language of repentance. Here's what repentance is. I change my mind, I change direction. And it's the hardest thing you're going to do in your whole life, and it's what you're called to do every day. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, what you do is you read the Bible, and you go, I'm not going to edit the Bible. Instead, I'm going to change my mind. And when I, see, when I change my mind and when I see different, by the way, the, the word that people use today for this would be paradigm shift. Oh, I had a paradigm shift, right? I see things differently. So, so the way that repentance works is it's not behavior modification. It's not like, uh, you know, I've given this illustration before, but it's, it's not like stop looking at porn. That would be behavior modification. It would be a good thing to do, but it would be behavior modification. Uh, repentance would be see sex and marriage and men and women so differently that it transforms the whole way that you look at everything. Therefore, it's going to change the direction of your life, and you would never want to look at pornography again. 
It's, it's not, hey, start giving and start saving and try to be content. It's see money so differently. See it as a tool. See it that God is owner and you are steward. See everything as a gift from God and then, and then out of that, you get it. Then It's like, well, that takes a little bit longer, but that's the deeper change and transformation. And what he's saying about this, this, this person, this rebellious person, is they're rebellious, but then they change their mind and they repent. It says, afterwards, they repented. Here's what this means. That the final analysis for belief is action. Now, I'm not saying you're saved by your works at all. You're saved by grace. Here's what the Bible says. Here's a summary of your whole life. You're saved by grace. You're evaluated by your works in the end. You're saved by the grace of God, the works of Christ, what he's done, but you're evaluated in the end by your works. And, and here's, here's what is clearly taught, particularly in this passage, is that action, your actions tell you what you believe. So if, if you were to really say, what do I believe? Like if I were to ask you, what, and I would say this about me too, I'm not picking on any one person here. But if I were to say to you, what do you believe? Here's the honest truth. You have no idea what you believe. I mean, that, we wouldn't need psychology and philosophy and anthropology and theology and counseling and therapy and all of the books and there wouldn't be any validity to any of the talk shows and any of the TED Talks if it was obvious to you who, what you believed and why you do what you do. It's not. And so one of the most humbling things, and I've been trying to do this a little bit this week myself, one of the most humbling things is if you want to know what you believe, you have to almost detach yourself from yourself and watch yourself like you would a complete stranger. And then you go, that's what I believe about alcohol. Like, I know the Bible passages or whatever, but that's actually, that's what I believe about marriage. I, 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 Ephesians 5, yeah, 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 I know that you can recite that, but actually, in your life, you're acting like you are living two completely separate lives. I've never seen you nourish. I've never seen you sacrifice. I've never seen you cherish. I've never seen you submit. And so he, he's, he's bringing it down to the level to say, we are saved by faith. Here's what the old Christians used to say. They would say, you are saved by faith faith alone, but that faith is never alone. But it's always accompanied by the grace of God and transforms and changes your life. And so he compares that to the other son. Here, look, look at verse 30. We already read it, but let's look at it one more time. He says, and he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. There are so many and we don't really have time to get into all this. There are so many examples of this. It's the person who comes on Sunday, who lifts their hands in worship, who brings their notebook and takes notes and applies none of it to their life. It's the person who's been having the same conversation with their spouse about how they're going to change and they never do. It's the person who makes lots of promises and lots of plans and has lots of good intentions but makes no progress. And here's what Jesus says about this. If you look at verse 31, he says this, which of the two did the will of my father? Oh, they said the first. Jesus said, yes. Truly, I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. Now, why is that? It's because the tax collectors and prostitutes were open about their sin. And when they heard the gospel, they saw themselves as sinners, and they were like the first son. They used to say, I will not, and now they, they changed their mind. They're, they're turning around, they're repenting, they're entering the kingdom of God. It, 
it would almost be impossible, I'm trying to do it, but it would almost be impossible for me to give as dramatic of a group of people as tax collectors and prostitutes as today. But think about the worst type of people in your mind and heart. And he's saying they're repenting before you. The, the, the rebellious atheist with, with the Darwin sticker that's eating the fish, okay? <laughs> Whatever, right? But that person's repenting. They've repented and they've entered the kingdom of God before you. The Muslim terrorist, and these are, story, I've read stories of these, Muslim terrorists are coming to faith in Christ and they're entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. All the people with all of the sexual lifestyles and the alternative lifestyles, guess what? They're repenting and they're entering the kingdom of God before you. And the big idea in this whole this whole Matthew chapter 21, and particularly in this small little parable, here's the big idea. What's wrong with you? That, that's it. That's, that's the whole parable in a phrase. What's wrong with you? You had every possible advantage. He's like, you had, the, you had the Torah, you had the temple, you had the symbols, you had the law, you had the prophets. Translation today, you went to Awanas. You had a great youth pastor. Your parents prayed for you. They gave you a Bible that was in your language, that was accessible at your age. You were in Sunday school. You had all of the best teaching, but you have become familiar with the things of God, with the grace of God. And, and he says, it, it's hopeful because he does say, he says, they're going in before you, but he does not say instead of you. And Jesus does this with so many of the parables, he leaves it at the very end to go, what's going to happen? And you never know. Uh, is, is the other son also going to maybe come back and change his mind? See, what's interesting is if you read this parable, there are two sons, but, one, but there's a son that's not mentioned, right? So there's the son that says, I will not, and then he does. That's called the rebellious, repenting son, praise God. And then there's the one who says, I go, sir, but does not. That's the respectful religious one. Guess who's missing? The great son, the son who says, I will, and immediately does. And guess who that is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the great son who saw himself, and when he, heard, when he heard God the Father say, son, go into my vineyard and work today, Jesus said, I am your son, and I will do that. And that's why at his baptism and at his transfiguration, and the main way that Jesus thought about himself was God is my father, and I am his son. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go. I want you to leave our rich neighborhood in heaven. Heaven is nicer than Buena Vista, it is. They've got so much money, it's, it's got golden streets. And he left that neighborhood to be a part of a lower, not even middle class, a low, a low income family to swing a hammer with his dad in a blue collar job. He went and he lived a perfect life and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead and his whole life was about the work of God. And see, oftentimes, and this is right, oftentimes we'll say, we're not saved by works, which is half true. It would be more accurate to say, we're not saved by our works. You're not saved by your works. I'm not saved by my works. But everybody who's ever saved is saved by the works of Jesus Christ. Because he didn't just teach and tell stories. He went to the cross and died for our sins and rose again. And that is the great hope that, like we said last week, anybody who's outside of the kingdom of God can respond to the call of God the Father. Son, go and work in my vineyard today. Let's pray. 
Lord, that's the call that we all want to respond to, Lord. We want to say yes and amen. Lord, some of us in here, we are rebellious. And we are like prodigals and we have wonder. And some of that, that's certainly some of the story of our life. If we look over the last 10 or 15 years and you just recently did a great work in us. And that we're going to celebrate some of that in Baptism Sunday. That we had said, I will not, but by the grace of God, we changed our mind. There's others of us, Lord, and our temptation is to be respectful and religious. To say all of the right things, to say, I'm praying for you, to say, I'm trusting the Lord. And we know it's the right answer, but it's not the real answer, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a place, Two Cities Church would be a place where there is so much hope for both the religious and the rebellious if they will only repent. We ask this all in the name of our older brother, Jesus Christ. Amen.